Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another patron episode of 80s All Over. I am Scott Weinberg, and as usual, as always, I should say, I am joined by my wondrous co-host from across the country, Mr. Drew McWeeny. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks. We, I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, sometimes we do commentaries and interviews with filmmakers and actors, and uh, I, I wanted uh, to throw a spotlight on some of the people who inspired Drew and I, and that generally means film critics. Uh, and I am very pleased that we are joined today by a critic who I won't say I read her as a kid, but I will say I read her as a very young adult. Uh, and uh, she was uh, she remains, in my opinion, one of the very best film critics to ever write in Philadelphia. But she has a uh, much larger career than just that. Miss Carrie Ricky. I was telling Scott that I'm jealous because I did not uh, when I was younger and I was reading film criticism. For me, it was national. Um, there was nobody local who I felt like I related to. And that's frustrating because you do look you look for sort of curation about what's happening in your city or you're looking for opinion. And I just, I never had it. Like I lived in places where there was none. So it's great that he's had that relationship as long as he has with your work. Oh, well, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Scott. And I was five years old when I started writing. Perfect. Movie criticism. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say, yeah, you're born in LA. Uh, so was. what, what brought you, what uh, in your career, uh, your early your education and early career brought you to Philadelphia? Um, well, I had, uh, moved to New York in my early twenties and, uh, started writing movie stuff for the village voice in about 1979, 80. And I was at the voice for three years. And then I was at the Boston Herald and then the Philadelphia Inquirer asked if I'd come to Philadelphia and it was a great paper then. And it's still very good now, but Daily journalism is very different now than it was in 1986. So um, they asked me, I came. And uh, did, did you fall in love with the city right away, or was it a uh, was it a culture shock? Did it? Uh, how did you take to the city? <laughs> well, at first, I was really annoyed because you know when you ordered a cup of coffee, it would take like a minute, and people were really nice. <laughs> and, morning. and this was oh. not what I was used to from New York. And I just wanted my coffee like that. And I didn't want to interact. And then after about a year, I just really liked it. And I, my quality of life improved. Oh, that, I love to hear that. Uh, Drew is also a transplant. So it, would you find that your experience was the same, Drew? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, with me, it was coming to L.A. And because I had to be here. And I've I've always had the mindset that I have to live in this city. This is where I wanted to work. Um, I, I'm really I, I'm fascinated by when you you sort of started, because that feels like a real changing of the guard era to be writing about film from the late 70s in the early 80s, because the business changed so much. And one of the things oh, we're seeing it, it was so radical and I wasn't really totally aware of that at the time. I mean, I knew things were changing, but now I can look back and say, oh my God, the distribution system changed radically. The number of films uh, released every year rose radically. I mean, in 1986, there was 176 films released in Philadelphia. In 2011, there was 510, a 300% jump in 25 years. Oh my God. Uh, I mean, it was sh it's shocking. And then um, when we talk about marketing, really through the 70s, um, you know, most movies were marketed to 
everyone, you know, except, you know, kids movies were marketed to kids, but otherwise all movies were marketed to everyone. Niche marketing starts in um, the early 80s with multiplexes. Yeah. yeah. Multiplexes and niche marketing go hand in hand. So you go to a multiplex and all of a sudden you see all African-American boys age 14 to 18 going to see, let's say, Boys in the Hood. And you see, you know, young girls of a certain age going to see, you know, how to make an American quilt. And everything is niche marketed. So not everyone is sharing the same experience. And I, I just think that sucks. I love going to movies with everyone. I do as well. And I experienced that with Get Out. Uh, and it did remind me of being like in a like maybe mid to late 80s theater where you would look around and see a lot of you know, a lot of faces that look like mine, but a whole lot that didn't. And yeah, that, that is a nice feeling. I, I really don't want to be in a homogenized neighborhood or homogenized movie theater at all. Um, I'm so so yeah. if we go to movies to see things that we don't know about and to see people who don't necessarily look like us and. Yep. I'm finding that's more and more an ideological divide in how we approach films. And it's one of the things that, you know, I, I know that both Scott and I are very fond of Roger Ebert and uh, we're recording this on what would have been his 76th birthday and a huge hat tip to one of the giants of our, our business. Um, but one of the things that he always pushed throughout his career, and I think it soaked in when I was young, even before he really nailed down that it was the defining characteristic of his work, was how he talked about how important empathy was in film and what it does to create that in people. And I know we've talked on the show about how the moment I found foreign films, it felt like, oh, my God, now I get to know what it feels like to live on that part of the world or that part of the world. And I love that. I found that like almost like time travel or like body travel. It was such a great feeling. Yeah. Even more, and, and, even, and yet, and yet, it's um, the more I watched foreign films, the more I realized everything was, you know, universal. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have to be foreign. I remember when Boys, like as you mentioned, Boys in the Hood came out, and that opened the floodgates for movies about young black men in their dealing with their environment, dealing with their neighborhoods, and I, I learned empathy from watching Juice and Menace to Society. I could not relate to what those boys were going through, but through those honest films, I, you know, learned a lot. I, I learned, you know, to empathize a lot more. Like that's what you get from films of any uh, stripe of, from any culture. And uh, we would have a lot less empathy if we didn't see other cultures and other skin colors in movies. We just wouldn't. The way you wrote up the, the, the era that you began, Carrie, um, when you started writing about film, uh, it feels like it was an era that really celebrated film writing um, with giant sort of, that they were treated like giants in print. Um, what drew you to film writing in the first place? And were there people that you specifically were drawn there by? My parents are both immigrants to were both immigrants to the United States, and the movies is where we learned how to be American. Wow! And what kind of clothes to wear, and how to kind of talk cool or to speak American, and. Movie going was a big deal in my family, and uh, so it was important. I think initially, when I went to college, I wanted to be a poet. And then a very great poet named Adrienne Rich came to visit our college, and she I was assigned to walk her around and be her guide. And she asked me you know, what I wanted to be, and I said a poet. And she said, well, you know, you can't make a living from it, because if you're a big poet, maybe you sell 900 books. And so you need a side gig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she said, do you have a side gig? I said, well, I really like movies that I'm reviewing for you know, my college newspaper. She said, 
you might want to think more seriously about that as a side gig. <laughs> and then the side gig became a main gig. Nice. nice. Uh, <laughs> Carrie, uh, just that little anecdote about your family growing up. I'm not kidding. Either as a as a biography is an autobiography or as fiction. That's a movie like, <laughs> a, a, you know, a, a family of immigrants and a young girl Lo, you know, growing to love movies because they helped her communicate in a new in a new home. Uh, that's a good story. Well, uh, uh, they're just trying to be American. <laughs> no, I love that. The idea of learning, learning to be, quote unquote, American through American films. I think it's a beautiful idea. Um, you came to Philly and you fell in love with the town. And then when did you start to realize that, like, things were kind of shaky for the daily uh, the daily print gig as far as film criticism goes? Well, I realized it first around 2000. So I'd been at the Enquirer for about 14, 15 years at that point. All print journalism seemed to be endangered from around 2005 forward. So, um, you know, I had kids. I needed to work. You know, was the best thing to just stay put. Uh, I'm not portable because my husband works in Philadelphia and he has a better job than I had. Not better, but he got paid paid more than I did. And um, it was complicated. Uh, so, And it was hard to branch out when I should have and written for other places because I had really young kids. So, Do those old reviews belong to you legally? No, they belong to the uh, Inquirer a uh, lot. It's unfortunate because but I, I have, would love to see a compilation. I'm sorry. Well... <laughs> People have asked, but now I'm the wrong. I'm the wrong age. People want younger people's collections, and you know, <laughs> uh, review collections don't sell. I'm allowed to reprint my inquiry reviews in a book, but I'm not allowed to publish them online. So it's, I'm in a, a bind. But thank you uh, for asking. Yeah, if uh, if anybody <laughs> wants University to- Press, you'd like to read them. I, I will definitely if you if you, you know, send me the info, Drew and I will gladly start a campaign because I always found I'm going to just wax the car for just a minute. I every Friday I would get the daily. My, my dad always got the Inquirer daily and I on a Friday would go get the daily news. And for about a half hour, either on my couch or at Burger King, I would read every review of every movie. Uh, uh, Gary Thompson, Stephen Ray, Desmond Ryan. And you were my favorite. Uh, and well, I, I, I so big it doesn't you know fit on my Skype uh, screen. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, you were a big influence. I could name te- if I could name ten film critics who had a huge influence on my career, you'd be in the top three without question. So uh, well, you know, you. It, it's a pleasure to be uh, friends with you now because I have always been a big fan. All right, and let's let's move into something that I hold near and dear to my heart, and I know it does to Drew in some ways. Let's talk just for a bit about Philly movies in general. Drew, why don't you tell Carrie how much you love Blowout? Well, Blowout to me is I because I'm a big De Palma fan, and I think part of that was uh, Kale sort of primed the pump because I read a lot of her work before I saw the films, and in a in a lot of ways, when I finally got to the movies, they were almost incidental to how I was thinking about them, not because I was already in love with them, because I was fascinated by them. And De Palma was a guy who, even before I got to see the films, I was so interested in the way she would talk about him as sort of a, um, he would boil everything down from his influences. And he would, he was so clearly in love with Hitchcock, but she had all these things she loved about his work. So 
seeing the films and checking them off a list was exciting to me. Blowout was the first one that I saw when it came out and I saw it at the moment that it, it was released and fell in love with regardless of what she wrote. Like it was just a great suspense movie to me. And then beyond that, it, it led me into reading deeper into films. So yeah, hugely influential film. Well, I love Blowout. I think it is the, I think it's my favorite Philadelphia movie. It uses the city beautifully. It shows, it begins in an area uh, of Philadelphia that's in the city, but almost it's suburban. It's in the Wissahickon Canyon. And uh, it's just, it's beautiful. And you see that owl, at least that like split diopter screen where the owl is very close mm-hmm. to you. And it's just scary as hell. And then uh, you, you hear the blowout, which is, I guess, an echo of Chappaquiddick. And it's about police cover-ups, and it's about movies, and it's about screams, and it's about the bicentennial. It's about America, in in many ways. Um, it's it's really great. But I'm also very fond of Rocky, and I'm fond of um, a lot of uh, Night Shyamalan's movies. And I really like um, you know a '40s set in Philadelphia movie called um, Kitty Foyle with Ginger Rogers. And part of me likes the Philadelphia story with Catherine Hepburn, but not as much as the other ones. Well, I like I, I love local cinema anyway. I, I love it when a filmmaker leans into the place that they live and that they know, whether it's like Baltimore seen through the eyes of Waters or Levinson or Philadelphia used so beautifully in Rocky. Like I, I and M. Night has kept that alive, I think, really well. I, but I love that. And I wish there was a little bit more of it because I think. Well, there's, there's in, in on the North Shore of Chicago. Yep, yep. I guess there was some great uh, poets of L.A. like I Robert. Get, I, I get a little tired of L.A. and New York. I feel like we've seen them a lot, so that's why I love when other cities really have filmmakers who are dedicated to getting them on screen and getting them right. Well, actually, Twelve Monkeys was very beautiful for Philadelphia yes, too. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. I was going to throw that in, and I'll and I will say at least at very least the first half of Trading Places has some wonderful. Oh, I think all of all of Trading Places. It's a great, great movie. I'm just yep. I'm re- going through uh, John Landis again. Yeah, nice. And, uh, he's great. He's great. He's just so underthought about today. We uh, he, had a, he had a great streak of comedy act slash action films that were just a huge part of my childhood. I loved love Animal was House. It, was it you who just recently wrote about Into the Night, or was it Scott? I can't remember. Uh, I wrote about it not long ago, and yep. I'm a I I love that one, and that is an LA movie where I feel like it's LA that we don't often get on film, and it I love it for that. It was um, a video essay that uh, Carrie, if you've not seen it uh, or anybody listening, of course, there's a great essay. I I don't remember the name, but it was uh, a video comparison of Into the Night with After Hours. Nice. Like, you know, covering the structure and the themes and the arc of each movie. It's really interesting. I would also say about Landis, and this is where I think um, this is one of the things that I wish people talked about more in the context of his career. I think he and Alan Parker are the two great underrated musical filmmakers of our. Oh, era. yeah. I, and I, I, God, Landis shoots musicals right and he cuts them right. The energy in the church scene in Blues Brothers is some of my favorite musical energy. And by the time it erupts into people doing giant handsprings they can't possibly do and everything, it. It's like it gets more ecstatic as it goes. You can feel how excited Landis is. 
Aretha Franklin in the a diner. Oh, and we just lost Matt Guitar Murphy, who in that scene right. can't act to save his life and is so delightful because he leans into it and he is so exuberant. And I think that's what Landis did so well, too, is even people who couldn't sing or dance, he could make them stars in musical numbers. Yeah, the, the Blues Brothers is, to me, one of the most uh, purest uh, exhibitions of cinema, music, dance. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's it's like the sense of humor is dryly absurd on purpose, and it is overlong and excessive on purpose, but I absolutely adore that movie. <laughs> Me too, although I, 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 do, I don't think that – I love the musical scenes. I don't think the dancing is so good or the or the composition is so good, but I love watching it. Yeah. And I just love, I love training places is just in another way. It's the great Philadelphia movie because in the eighties you always had, there's got to be a blue blood with a blue collar guy and they learn from each other and it's great. And I, you know, it, it adheres to that kind of very nice democratic formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also note that uh, throughout your career, you've been a very staunch advocate of a certain filmmaker that drew and I love. And that's David Cronenberg. Can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe at, when you were a critic in the 80s, like going and like discovering films like his later films like Dead Zone and The Fly and whatnot? Well, I mean, I came in a lot earlier than that. Um, oh, go then. While, start back then. Yes, yes. While I was at The Voice, I think Cinema Village did a double or a triple bill of The Brood, They Came From Within, and Scanners. Oh. And that's what I discovered him. And I like to think that I helped build the Cronenberg bandwagon. I just had never seen anything like it. I I guess I'd never really seen body horror before. And it just seemed so invasive into my central nervous system. And I'm wondering to what extent, like Brian De Palma movies like Sisters were an influence on Cronenberg. Uh, especially, you know, Sisters, I think, influenced a little bit um, Dead Ringers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of similarities between them. And um, I just saw Cronenberg and, you know, it was uh, a moviegoer Vulcan mind meld with the director. (laughs) See, and, and I feel like we as young genre fans in the early 80s, Oh, critics who actually took the time to watch the work of Carpenter and Cronenberg and treat them seriously. We owe you guys a thanks because they they needed it. Clearly, they bounced off the mainstream in some ways. And clearly, you know, there were critics who pushed back hard against horror as a genre and pushed back against some of these more outrageous filmmakers simply because they were outrageous. But I those early Cronenberg works, the brood is so important to me. And I. I think he is one of our most political filmmakers. I think he is from the very beginning had very real, very profound things to say about our relationship with the world. And, and yeah, I, I think part of it was the, he was the first filmmaker that ever made me realize that we have a relationship with our body, that it is that we are separate things in some ways. And his films get at that and the way they can be, and the way the body can betray you and the way the body can let you down and turn on you. And there is nothing, I don't think that is more terrifying or primal than that. Uh, Um, I I would agree. And and personal. Yeah. Uh, Also, he had, um, Cronenberg had a very interesting relationship to, um, you know, scientist, Mm-hmm. Uh, almost in every movie, there's a scientist who makes a great discovery and it backfires. Yeah. 
badly. <laughs> and and um, I, I think it's I think that's very very interesting to kind of not rely on science to save us. But He's one of those filmmakers that gets pegged as chilly, where people say, "Oh, I don't I don't connect because I find the films cold or I, I bounce." And there's people like him and the Coens who I've heard that about. And I always find that those filmmakers, I don't see that. Like, I think Cronenberg's movies have very hot blood in a lot of ways. I just think he's smart and there is a sense of remove so that he can show you what he's talking about. Instead, of, I, I think he's so good at what he does that it feels a little chilly sometimes. Mm, yeah. Well, I think this is this one thing, even in a big studio or a reasonably big studio movie like The Fly, there seems to be only three people living in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Oh, so the, 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 his movies are very depopulated. Um, and I don't know whether that means that many people from the United States of America think that's kind of weird. There's, there's some, some weirdness about that. But, you know, Canada just isn't as populous as the United States. They take place so. in some private world. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Carrie, you you mentioned something I'd like to touch on because I think it's something that all film critics do, especially in their earlier years, or they try to do, is uh, when I look back over the first, say, 10 years, I have championed uh, filmmakers that I really like, uh, like like uh, Lucky McKee uh, and like the early films of James Wan. I like all of their films. And then you look back over your, your career and you think, maybe I did do some good. I did expand the horizon of my viewers so they're not just watching the same stuff. And I can only imagine that in the late 70s and, and eight, throughout the 80s, it was infinitely harder to champion a filmmaker than it is today. Today, it's fairly easy to champion somebody you love. Uh, but but back then it was, I'll write a review, maybe I can do a feature on a Sunday paper, and that's about it. What else can I do? Well, that can help. Yeah. Well, I like I said, I think if I had not read critics pointing me to these people and saying, it's okay that you love them more than this other critic does, I, I, I don't know. I think I would have felt really confused as a young viewer. Um, that's one of the values of criticism for me was the, the validation of the fact that I didn't have to agree with everyone because I knew that somebody out there had the same reaction I did. And I can't explain even how important it was when you're 11, 12, 13, starting to figure out film to find a critic who validates that you're not crazy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, Carrie, like there would be times where I would see one star review, one star review, and then you would give it two, two and a half, maybe three stars or the other way around. And I'd be like there. OK, at least at least one of the critics I respect liked it. Um, and often you were very kind to genre films that other critics would just dismiss out of hand. I think I um, before there was a, a concept of psychotronic films, I was always interested in those science fiction suspense body mind movies nice. and i don't i don't know why i don't know what in me was attracted to it i think that they kind of they appealed to me to my mind and my body you know they were both visceral and cerebral i think that's that's a secret of cronenberg all right now we get to the meat of the matter our podcast is of course focused on the films of the 1980s and uh, I gave one of my uh, one of my mentors some homework. And that homework was I asked her if she wouldn't mind writing down uh, a handful of 80s films that she loves 
uh, and preferably some of which could be described as overlooked un- or underloved. So uh, with in no particular order, uh, Carrie, unless they are in any particular order. Uh, I, I alphabetize. I mean. Okay. Oh, <laughs> alphabetical is good to go. So we'll we'll run through these and we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll all share a, a communal review of said film. Okay. Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Yay! We have not gotten to this in our in our traditional episodes yet, but I, Drew, you and Carrie, go ahead. Yeah, I I fell in love with this because uh, they they did that thing where in the eighties frequently they would put the novels out first, and they had and W. D. Richter when he wrote the novelization for this was given full carte blanche to just expand it and he treated it like it was book 19 in a series so there's footnotes and references to early adventures and and there's literal like like references to other titles in the series that didn't exist it was a great piece of pulp uh sort of come to life so when the film finally came out like a month later i was so primed already that i think i probably would have loved whatever it was (laughs) but but it's the fact that it hit the brick wall with so much of the public that then made me really dig in and look at what it was that I loved. And I, I adore this film for all of its oddities for the insane comedy of it, for the just wall to wall, terrific performances in it, but it's, it's dizzy love of pulp. It gets the whole doc Savage, the shadow thing better than I think any adaptation of those ever did. I didn't compare it to anything and I didn't read the, the novelization at all. I just remember seeing it early in the morning when I was living in Boston and just laughing my head off. <laughs> and, Harry, I, I mean, I mean it, 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 it was kind of hipster absurdism. I just, you know, that Jeff Goldblum and someone else are walking down through the lab and there's a watermelon <laughs> kind of holding up a computer screen or something. I can't uh-huh. remember. Goldblum begins to explain it and then just shrugs like, yep. Never mind. It was it was absurdist and it was nice and it came out. I like to laugh. I think Lithgow should. That's the kind of comedy performance that I wish people paid more attention to. (laughs) Do either of you uh, do either of you remember the critical reaction to the film? I know there was a lot of befuddlement. I, I think it got dismissed pretty hard and and pretty conclusively. And it was one of those where it it laid the giant egg at the box office about as as quickly as it could and was gone very, very fast. So I don't think a lot of people even would have had a chance to catch up if there had been word of mouth. But that was that felt like a cult item the moment you saw it. Like, this is going to be something that I'll hold dear to me for the next 15 years. And I'll have to explain to people because no, nobody else is, is on board right I, I now. Some other people who like it. I wish I'd known them back then. It felt lonely. <laughs> I just, I mean, Weirdly, uh, Richter lived um, in the Boston area uh, when I was in Boston. And I just remember taking a friend to a restaurant for her birthday, and Richter and his wife were there. And they sent, they kept on sending over bottles of champagne, and he's responsible for getting me sloppy drunk. Drunker <laughs> than I've ever seen in my life. And I thank him for that. I didn't even know. He knew who I was. I didn't know. know who's this guy who sent this over? And then I realized... <laughs> See, Carrie, if that if that happened to you today, it would be on Twitter and they would say, oh, liar film critic gives positive review for free wine. I've given the review several months before the encounter. Yeah, they don't care. They won't care. They wouldn't care. Scandal. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, but no, Carrie, do you like remember reading any reviews of Buckaroo and going, oh, didn't get it? 
you guys. You know, I I did. It's a lot easier to read other people's reviews now that they have aggregators going. I didn't read a lot of other reviews because I didn't want to be swayed. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. We both do that. But afterwards, I read a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, I love Ellen Barkin in that as well. And I think it's one of the first moments where there. it's weird. Now that we're going chronologically through the 80s and we're watching all these films in context and we're seeing like the development of her career is one of the things that we're watching right now. Like the first five or six big roles she played, it's just she got cast as somebody who somebody else is terrible to. And it's Hartman Diner. She's got the terrible, terrible relationship with Daniel Stern. And we just watched something else where uh, Daniel, where it was just uh, oh, Timothy yeah. Hutton being terrible to her. And so I love that. She's great as Penny Pretty. That's what I love. I love that they finally gave her something. And she was so good as Penny Pretty. And her intro is so arresting. And yeah, she's really terrific in it. And that silly sequin dress and the smeared smeared mascara. She was my heroine. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think um, we, uh, Dabney Coleman is uh, our male, um, ma- no, not mascot, but uh, spirit guide. And I think Ellen Barkin is go- is our female spirit guide for 80s all over. We both yeah. adore the woman. Uh, and Carrie, <laughs> Carrie, what's next on your list? Broadcast news. Oh, nice. Can I give you my favorite line from that movie? Sure. <clears throat> I'll meet you at the place near the thing where we went that time. Yeah, Albert oh. was- Great. So, I mean, I don't always remember dialogue, lines of dialogue as I'm watching the movie, but I remember seeing that in 87 and just going, it was like a needle in my heart, like, that's a great line. But yeah. no, Carrie, tell us why you love uh, broadcast news, please. Well, I mean, at the time, it was just so wonderful to see a movie that was about the workplace, like Mary Tyler Moore, which James Brooks also wrote. Um, but also about romance and professionalism. And uh, it was about so many things that were pertinent to me. And it was also about shoulder pads, (laughs) 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 which which is a big deal if you're a woman with narrow shoulders or like Albert Brooks who didn't have shoulders. So, I mean, the moment when Holly Hunter tears out her shoulder pads and jacket so he looks better on TV is very moving. There's so much love and competition and interest in that movie, but you watch it now and you realize that was a time, you know, before, before news was infotainment. It's about the last moment when there were, you know, uh, ethics and morals in news delivery. And it was, it's now such a historical artifact and, and moving for that, but it was just, Really fun, um, and it was nice to see a man play the dumb blonde, you know, William yeah. play the dumb blonde character. There was just so many surprising reversals, and um, I love James Brooks, but I think there's, he likes women, and he kind of makes women fall apart a lot in his movies, which is curious. It's- um, it was. It, I would. I would say that might be one of the more formative um, experiences of the late eighties for me in terms of dialogue. His ear in that movie is insane. Uh, it's how insane. about how about Joan Cusack telling Holly Hunter, "Except for your personal life, you're my role model." She. There's so many moments in that movie. I Albert Brooks. It might be, and I finally got a chance to talk to him about it on the set of This Is Forty, and I felt bad because I was like, I'm going to talk to you for. 15, 20 minutes about another film before we talk at all about the one you're making right now. Um, 
that performance in broadcast news is the finest piece of film acting he'll ever do. And it's because of that the character they gave him to play and he gets it. He gets the anger and he gets the reality of it. And he is hilarious in it. And he is so good at playing the brainy guy who is upset that he doesn't get what he wants and is slighted and feels slighted and is trying to figure out how to handle that. And man, it, it's a remarkable piece of work. And well, also, I mean, that's something that women feel a lot. And it was really a, such a relief for the male character to go through that. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, that, that Hunter didn't have to go through that. You know, it's <laughs> really I, great. Uh, I haven't seen it in many years, but I do distinctly remember the three character dynamic. And I like that you say the male is the dumb blonde, but he's also given a, a, enough dimension so that you have some sympathy for him. Albert Brooks is clearly admirable in many ways, but everybody can relate with that sort of neuroses that he has. And Holly Hunter, she's, uh, you know, she runs the show. She's capable in every way, except she also has her own issues to deal Chagas, with. Chagas, as they yes, say. Yes, yeah, yeah. It might, I think broadcast news is something that I would call like – if there is like a champagne of sitcoms, like that's that the movie is like it's a sitcom, but it's like a champagne of sitcoms. That's I don't think I think there's more edge than you get in sitcoms. Okay, uh, a lot of people uh, blame um, James Brooks for making sitcoms instead of movies, but I ju- I just think there's a lot of edge in all of his movies, and people aren't nice. Why? Well, yeah, I, I mean it's. People got upset in the news industry about how that film portrayed them. And it's funny that now Brooks looks like a mad prophet, like he saw it coming down Broadway. And if anything, undersells how horrible it can get. Um, But the news media really took offense at the notion that they were starting to become just entertainment. And no, 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 we're still a very real. We're just news. And yeah, Uh, he he hit it at the right moment. I mean, that's great. Also. Almost every James Brooks movie is about a triangle of some sort. And mm-hmm. man, this is the, that broadcast news is the best triangle movie. Yeah. Uh, OK, what do you got next? The Dead, John Huston's last movie. Oh, Drew, I've never seen this. This one's all you. Uh, I, it's it's it, it was too big a meal when I saw it. I saw it in this was 87, I think. 88, 88. 87, so, I think. Oh, so I was, I was 17, 18, and I saw it, and I I was still wrestling with Pritzi's Honor, a film that I, I uh, was sort of blindsided by. Pritzi's Honor was a heavy meal, and I feel like The Dead is one that when we get back to it, doing it this time through the decade, I'm excited to sit down with as an adult now. It's so beautifully handled. It's, I, I think it's like 75 minutes. It's very short, and there's a lot of long takes, but you kind of enter this room and I can't remember whether it's Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. It's a, it's a big holiday and you enter this room and you're with a lot of people and the last scene, it's like, it goes from this master shot to a close up of Angelica Houston at the very end talking to her husband. And it is so moving. It's like going from macro to micro Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's like a symphony or something. It's, it's one of the greatest, Twilight movies that any director ever made. I love it. Um, well, we talked about the fact that there's so many guys who their films in the eighties feel like they made two or three films too many. Like they just kept working and the fire was out. And I love guys who in their twilight did it like really pulled that last couple of films together. And I, I know this film's reputation. That's why I'm excited to get back to it. Cause it sounds like it's 
Yeah, he at his best, he was untouchable. Yeah, even as a kid, I liked Pritzi's Honor, but for some reason, I never got to the dead, and I definitely look forward to seeing it, especially now. Yeah, it's James Joyce, it's literary, blah, 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 and it's got all these Irish actors and Angelica Houston, who actually grew up in Ireland. Um, It's it's marvelous. Uh, It really needs a big screen. I think it's okay. be, be a mistake to see it on your computer. No, no, I have. Yeah, I saved. I saved. Mo, I would say seventy-five to eighty percent of the movies I rewatch for the show or watch for the show are on a pretty impressive. I don't want to blow my own. I don't want to brag about my television size, but how many inches? <laughs> um, less than sixty. <laughs> okay. Um, Just ask. Yeah. All right. Uh, what, uh, all right. What do you have next on your list? Desperately seeking Susan. <sighs> Great, great pick. I'm, I saw it as a kid. Don't don't remember much of it, but I did remember liking it. I was probably uh, like three years too young and perhaps the wrong young gender at the time. But I can't wait to revisit it. Um, I think that's also a movie you can compare to After Hours. OK, frankly, it's a very good comparison because one is one is. Desperately seeking Susan is from the woman's point of view and kind of upbeat and funny and funky and the Scorsese is very paranoid and a little neurotic or a lot neurotic, but I, I love desperately seeking Susan, but it's really interesting for me to, um, when I teach it, teach film history, sometimes I'll show that as a double bill to my students and ask them to do a compare and contrast. We, uh, it's, we- it's pretty interesting. We just did Smithereens, Seidelman's film. A great movie, and I almost said that instead. It's very I, hard. I feel like like Desperately Seeking Susan is almost her taking what she did so well in Smithereens and then doing it with a pop icon uh, with, Except with Madonna. Madonna was no one then. Do you understand? When, yeah. when she started the movie, Madonna was largely unknown out of New York. So basically she got to help define that because it, it what madonna is in desperately seeking susan is how then for the next fifth not even 15 years for the next five or six years that was what i thought of as madonna like i think she did it as much as the videos did i think i was actually on the set to do a, uh, a location piece and seidelman really knew what she wanted seidelman who had seen madonna around lower manhattan clubs for many years um really work with Madonna just so she, she behaved instead of acted. Yeah. And it was a really, really good style direction. Now I knew Madonna because we used to get our hair colored at the same place in Soho. So I was really surprised because I didn't know who she was. Yeah. When we were getting our highlights. Um, but, uh, then I realized, oh, yeah, she's that girl from Danceteria. <laughs> well, I love Seidelman's New York. Like to me, and I, I didn't get to New York to work there until 94, 95. So the New York that it was on film from the 70s and 80s was gone by that point. And it sure was. And it's fascinating to me. I look at it and I think her eye is one of my favorites for that sort of punk, crazy, fringe New York feel of the early 80s. She just she loved it. And it's it vibrates in her movies. Yeah, she has she has a great sense of color and movement, good musical ear, um, and I just it just it just made me happy. You know, it was it was like the Wizard of Oz. It was right. uh, any uh, 
any other additional comment on the remainder of Madonna's film career? I think Madonna's film career begins and ends with this one. <laughs> Wait, so no, who's that girl? No Shanghai surprise? <laughs> Dude, don't bring up Probably Shanghai. We're going to get there. Uh-uh. I don't think we need to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, let's stick, let's stick to the stuff we like. All right, uh, Carrie, what else do you have? Fast times at Ridgemont High. Uh, we covered this extensively. Let's, let, uh, we are going to cede the floor to you. <laughs> um, it just introduced so many really great actors, actresses. Cameron Crowe is a screenwriter. But the way that Amy Heckerling mixes comedy with really serious stuff and just, you know, candid about abortion, really moving about a brother-sister relationship, about female fantasies, about male fantasies. Uh, Forrest Whitaker is great, and I think it's the first time I ever saw him. I just, I just really, really enjoyed it. And, um, and it was pretty much the first time I'd ever seen Sean Penn, frankly, I guess. And he and Ray Walston just cracked me up. And, um, and I grew up in Southern California, so it seemed like a documentary. <laughs> and I, I think Jennifer Jason Lee in that film, I is so good and so vulnerable. And I, I don't think Phoebe Cates gets the credit for how vulnerable she is in that movie. There's, there's this I love that she throughout the film sells this confidence and sells this version of the life that she's living. And it is so clear from an adult perspective that everything she says is not true. And when you watch it as a teen, you kind of think she's telling the truth. And it's a, it's such a phenomenal choice by heckerling to never on camera deflate the story. Mm -hmm. It is a perspective thing where the older you get fast times becomes uh, you, you get more um, protective of the characters, I think, because you really feel for them and you realize how great a snapshot it is of the real uh, way we all were kind of figuring ourselves out at that moment. And I also I think I don't know. I think I saw uh, at one point with my parents and um, they just love the Los Angelesness of it all. And. And um, I remember my father saying, was that what high school was like for you? And I said, largely, even though it was, I went to high school in the late 60s. And uh, it was very, very similar to that. Um, and I, I guess Heckerling and I are roughly the same age because um, a lot of the stuff in that movie seemed, seemed more 70s than 80s to me. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. They, they do. There is like it, it's like the last traces of of seventies pop culture. I mean, the coolest songs in the movie are like Zeppelin and Cheap Trick and whatnot. You know, uh, but yeah, I, we love Fast Times. It's a classic. What else you got? The Fly. Oh God! Oh, oh! It's literally my favorite horror film of the entire decade, and I have seen them all. Tell us why. Yeah. Uh, tell us why you love The Fly. Uh. Well, Goldblum is amazing. And the whole, I guess, the moment I kind of sat up in my seat at attention was the insect politics monologue, mm-hmm. which is so amazing. Um, and just the idea of a teleport. Uh, I, 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 I like the science of it. 
as I said before about Cronenberg, I like the idea that he has all these really smart guys, these scientists who invent things that don't work to plan necessarily. And, uh, yeah, there's upsides and downsides. I, I, there's this, that whole Robert J. Oppenheimer thing running through all of his work that, you know, Oppenheimer kind of created the bomb, but look what the bomb did. And, um, so you create this amazing thing that might help win a war, but look what it does to the residents of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And look, look what it does to the, you know, environment. I just, I, I, I just think, well, first of all, it's a remake, but so much better than the original. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I, I like the fact that Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum look like twins. <laughs> can you can you speak a little bit on the uh, I know that because it, when it came out, it was very topical and that it was taken as a direct a metaphor for the AIDS virus and watching somebody waste away. Although watching it again in recent years, I think it, it, it could take could be any it could apply to any disease that to me. Uh, what anything the film is the body fails you. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I there's a lot of movies in the 80s that referred to AIDS, but I didn't, I really didn't think of The Fly as one of them. Mm. I just think it was a scientist who bears both the responsibility and the um, uh, after effects of something he creates. Yeah, I, I find it, I, I think it's another one of those cases where genre acting gets marginalized. If that was just a movie about that couple going through him having a horrible disease, any disease in which you lose your body oh, yeah. and you lose Good yourself, point. that Good movie point. wins Oscars for both of them. And right. If that's a movie about him going insane instead of turning into a fly, they both get nominated. That's a good yeah, point. It's, yeah. it's it, And they are terrific. I love the fact that they found the, the project like he got his script, started rehearsing lines with her. She went in and ran for Cronenberg. And then they kind of as a couple, that energy that they have, that real energy that's in that film is really undeniable. There is it, they crackle on screen together. They are so interesting and so into each other in that movie that I think it's 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 a snapshot. It is a perfect capture of that moment for both of them as actors working at the absolute height of what they could do. They inspired each other to be better and clearly they each wanted yeah, and they're in love, and you can tell they want each other to be incredible in the film. And so they're setting each other up, and they're they both slam dunk everything they're given to do in the movie. It's oh, they're great. It also Carrie, helps that that Jeff Goldblum looks like a fly. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, I got to I got to ask you this from a I mean because in '86 you were already at the Inquirer here, right? Mm-hmm. So you I were, was. You were seeing the film either either you were reviewing it or you just seeing it as a professional. Uh, Explain to our listeners how you can be both a film critic and a, a super excited geek who loves Cronenberg, and now you're about to sit down and watch his biggest movie ever. I really looked forward to it. I love Goldblum. I really, although I'd seen Gina Davis and Tootsie, I really didn't know very much about her. Mm. Um, you know, when Desmond Ryan and I were kind of fighting over what we reviewed. I said, um, I want to fly. And he said, oh, you can have it. Who, who <laughs> have it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Desmond yeah. Ryan is another great uh, local film critic, uh, fantastic writer. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, he, he was a fantastic writer. <laughs> um, 
in any case, uh, I was, yeah, I always look forward to Cronenberg movies. And um, should I say this? I'm going to say this. I actually saw Dead Ringers sitting next to um, Brian De Palma. Oh, wow. <laughs> and who, 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 I, who I'd interviewed and I'd known. And, you know, he saw me in the screening room and, you know, we sat together. And when there's that great moment in um, Dead Ringers where I guess one of the twins, Elliot Mantle, I can't remember whether it was Beverly or Elliot, which twin creates the um, gynecological tools for sad women or whatever. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Brian, for mutant women. Yeah. Legs. <laughs> like, protect me from this. Protect me from these. So uh, Brian De Palma crossed his legs in response to that image from a Yeah, and I just I started chuckling. And oh, yeah. I, I like to believe, I, and you can maybe maybe attest to this, but I like to believe that De Palma is a huge Cronenberg fan. I, I think they're each, they're each other's fans. I, yeah. I, I'm guessing. I don't really ask directors what they think about each other's work. Yeah, no, I just like to because uh, they're they're similar in some ways and very different in many ways. Uh, but as a kid, it was like there was those were two that I watched their films like a tennis match. I would do a De Palma, I would do a body yeah. double, and then I would do the Dead Zone and just yeah. be like in love with these guys and their work. Okay, you want the next one? Yes. Oh, this is out of alphabetical order. Whoops, Entre Nous by mm-hmm. Dion Curry. It's a French movie. We. we we're about three months away from doing it on the podcast, and I have not seen it. So I'm excited. Please tell uh, me what I'm looking forward to. Uh, well, it's part of a you know a, a trilogy that Dion Curry's made along with Peppermint Soda. It's really about how her parents met and divorced, and it starts during World War II, and it's about these women who kind of become friends through being being mothers and through their husbands. But the women can be have a, a stronger relationship than they with each other than they do with the husbands. It's not sexual, but their being able to talk to each other helps release them sexually and be more honest about their sexual lives, which they aren't really experiencing with their husbands. And it's very very moving. Um, and I, it's a movie I love. And showed to my husband while we were dating, my man who became my husband, you know, while we were dating, I showed it to him. And to him, it was this totally different movie about a woman who divorced, who, a man and a woman who had kids and the woman divorced him. It was a totally different movie for him. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and I knew that, you know, everyone brings their own stuff to movies and we see a reflection of who we are, who we think we are on the screen. But that was the most acute difference <laughs> I've ever experienced in a movie. And um, I think we had a fight about it, but we got married anyhow. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have not seen it. There's a lot of foreign films that I am discovering for the first time. Uh, when we came up with the idea for this podcast, I was like, oh, I'm all set. I could do mo- I could do half of this in my sleep. Yeah. OK. Uh, no, every uh, every week I'm knee deep in in Fassbender and films that I had never seen and uh, foreign films I'd never heard of. And I'm being educated uh, while while hopefully we are educating uh, other people about other films. So I'm looking forward to Entree New. Uh, do you have any others? Um, the next movie is also a foreign film. Uh, Marlene Goris is A Question of Silence. Wow. Okay. Have you guys seen it? I have. Nope. Drew has. Go I ahead. have. It's been a long time. Um, 
Yeah, I, that's another one that is on my list of need to rewatch because I am guessing that the, whatever complicated reactions I had to it the first time are going to be very different now. Uh, well, I, I think you were, what, 13 or 14 when you saw it? I, I saw it about a year or two after, so it would have been video. So 15, probably. It's a movie about three women who may or may not be involved in a murder. And when they're tried, they don't speak. And it's about how silence is power. It's about how men treat women, both in the courtroom and in the real world. It represented the world as I knew it. And I experienced it, but I'd never seen it before. Because most of the people directing movies are men. And they don't have the same experiences that I do. And it was really about, I guess, what we would call today microaggression. It was just... Very dryly funny and dead serious. Okay, I don't want to give it away, but yeah, yeah. I'm, I just looked it up now to make sure we didn't bypass it by mistake and drew it. Pencil this in for August of '84 yeah. is when it, it looks like the limited release was because I have not seen it and uh, I look forward to it. All right, well, Carrie, I want to thank you so I'm much. Not done. Oh, there's more. I, I'm sorry. I was counting them off in my head. I got, we'll, we'll go for another half How hour. How about Repo Man? How about the Revolt of Job? How about She's Got to Have It? Go, go, go. Wait, oh wait, wait. Start Repo with Man. No, yeah. no. We'll get, let's save that one for the end. Start with okay. the second, that second one. What's that one? The Revolt of Job. Um, I believe it's a Hungarian movie from 85 by Imre Yangasi. It is, I don't cry a lot. Well, I cry a lot at movies, but this one I had, I guess what we would call, um, horizontal tears. I was crying so hard that I had projectile weeping. Um, it's about a Jewish couple, uh, before world war two who are are unable to have a baby. So they adopt a non-Jewish baby and they are so attached to him and he is so attached to them And then the Holocaust comes, and it is so totally wrenching. It has a lot to do with what's happening at the American border right now with parents and children being separated. I don't think I've ever imagined what's happening in McAllen, Texas, and Elizabeth, New Jersey right now with these uh, immigrant children and parents being separated, but on a big screen and well acted. It is... Ugh. Ranching. Drew, are you uh, familiar with this one? Nope. All right. Nope. Well, I did not know this title. Okay. All right. We're and we're going to say what was the other? One? Oh, Repo Man. Uh, and she's got to have it. All nice. right. Yeah. Now, ex- now, if you could encapsulate or describe the arrival, the official film festival, film world arrival of Spike Lee. You know, I was in New York in the late seventies and early eighties. So I, I, and I was at NYU for a little while. So I knew Spike Lee, I was in the cinema studies program at NYU and he was in film and I'd seen some of his early work, like, uh, Joe's Bed-Stuy barbershop. Um, and, uh, yeah, I thought he was, you know, yeah, I kind of pegged him as a documentarian and pretty serious. He makes this, Wonderful black and white movie called She's Got to Have It about a young woman named Nola and the three men who love her. And he plays one of the men. And 
it's just it was incredibly charming. It was set in Brooklyn before Brooklyn became what it is now. And it was lighthearted and charming and a part of the city that was not then discovered or, you know, wasn't in a lot of movies. Yeah. And just new faces and very sexually candid. And about how men, largely about the male double standard, that men can cat around, but if a woman does, you know, she's a hoe. Yeah. And... Uh, Lighthearted, you know, vibrating with life um, and funny. And it was just, you know, a, a world I hadn't seen and a candor I hadn't seen in movies. And um, it was fresh and it was funny and it was just beautifully shot. I loved it. I, I think about the movie and I just smile. And I, I haven't watched it for about 15 or 20 years. But I just loved it at the time and on subsequent feelings. And um, it's one of the great first features ever. It was hugely important, hugely important to me when it came out. And it was the film plus the fact that Spike would write books about how he made his films and publish the screenplay. And he did it from She's Gotta Have It On. So there was a real sense that as an independent filmmaker, he wanted you to pick up your camera and do the same thing. And I, I found Spike to be inspirational from day one, just just because of the energy, the filmmaking and the fact that it was this this cultural window that he opened it, that had a different attitude and voice than a lot of black cinema that had come before it was super exciting. But then just the independent filmmaker side of him, I think, uh, gets overlooked sometimes in terms of how important he was to 80s independent cinema. He was like Soderbergh. He was a giant part of opening it up and making it um, something that people were excited to seek out. My first experience with Spike Lee uh, was school days. Uh, I would not I would have been probably too a bit too young to appreciate or even get the context if she's got to have it. I didn't see it probably till I was in my mid twenties. And I was like, yep, that's as funny and bright and vibrant. Like you said, Carrie, as everybody says, and it doesn't surprise me that it skyrocketed him into a, into a great career. Uh, but uh, I will always for that, for that reason is why I'll always be a huge fan of school days, which I think is uh, maybe not considered among Spike Lee's very best films, but it, cracks me up it has it is really funny and has real uh, good energy lots of good music and dancing as well and i love uh, the yeah. musical number debut yep. <laughs> yeah and, also, oh, and that's that's where i learned what a step show was prior yeah. to school days i had never heard that phrase and again we were talking about it earlier just watching and going oh this looks funny taught me a lot about other cultures it just seeps into your skin um and i i actually like how um Spike Lee uses color, uh, I'm cinematography color, mm-hmm. and how he shoots musical scenes. I think Debut in um, School Days and the musical scenes at the beginning of uh, Malcolm X are just fantastic. He and Dickerson had a terrific working relationship, and their collaboration was just dynamic every single oh, time. True. We, uh, by the time this episode airs, you and I will have met Ernest Dickerson in Chicago at Cinepocalypse. There was he a com- is, he's a treat. Yeah. There's a completely natural plug segue. <laughs> and let us close out with, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say Repo Man is one of the films that if you were a film geek in the 80s, 
if you had to have seen this movie to get into just any not a, not not a cool kids club, but when eight of your friends are talking about it and you're the only one, i.e., me, who hadn't seen it yet, uh, you know, Repo Man is one of the most formative and influential and entertaining indie films of the decade. Carrie, would you agree? Uh, I, I mean, it was just a, a real pleasure. You, you, as you could hear, a lot of the movies I like are just straight out comedies. Because, or satires. And I, I think Repo Man was um, a satire of a lot of things, but a lot of, a lot of it was sat- satirizing Southern California and people who love their cars too much. <laughs> and I think there's this great line, um, you know, the more you drive, the stupider you get, which is one of the best lines of any movie ever made. And another line, let's go eat sushi and not pay. That was like being cultural. <laughs> 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 and, and I believe Emilio Estevez, who is the central character in it, um, his parents are, are being brainwashed on kind of Christian shows. And Emilio Estevez wants some kind of transcendence, which he gets by way of a car, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. I don't know that it has... A lot to say, but it, what it has to say, it says very pointedly and with great humor. Mm, and well, well said. Real. Yeah, I and, remember virtually nothing about it except there's something glowing in the trunk and Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, I have not seen it probably since the '90s. So when we get to it for the uh, for the podcast, I can't I can't wait to revisit Repo Man. Drew, what do you got? Hugely formative for me. I uh, I saw this. I saw it when I was 14. And I was right before I moved to Tampa and Tampa had an awesome punk scene in the eighties. They had a place downtown Ybor city. that was just punk clubs. Oh, was, I love Ybor city. That's where they make cigars. Yep. And it was, and back then that was before they kind of revamped it to make it a little more tourist safe. Uh, it used to be a dive and uh, they, every a club down there was all ages and there were armory shows. And so black flag and uh, all the bands from this movie, this soundtrack was the soundtrack of like a year and a half of my life, basically. And uh, I go back and listen to it now, and I get get really nostalgic about these songs and about sort of the energy of Repo Man. The satire and all the other stuff, I didn't even start to get until later. For me, it was pure, in-your-face, middle-finger energy, a big, giant, rowdy, fuck you to everything. And there was there was just so much balls to the filmmaking. And Harry Dean Stanton was what you think every cool old guy is. He he knew everything. And he had an attitude about it. And I really, I the relationship between he and Estevez in that movie is terrific. Um, I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to get to it uh, in this this run of stuff. And when I share it with my kids, I want them to be just young enough that it's probably a mistake, but that's what will make it awesome. So (laughs) I have a question for you guys. Sure. Do you think in eighties movies, we have kind of the same split we had in popular music in the eighties, like between disco and punk, because a lot of the movies I liked in the 1980s were Punk yeah, not really. I think I, I don't think the the, the I don't think there's many filmmakers right now who are uh, in tune enough to even use like really fringe music. You don't see it creep into mainstream film at all. In the 80s, there was a sense that you could make a punk movie or you can make a rap movie or you could. And and it was 
perfectly valid. And I think part of that was the idea that the niche had suddenly become so valuable to Hollywood that they were like, sure, lean into it. It doesn't matter. Well, somebody will go, hopefully. And I think there was more freedom to really drill down into some crazy cultures. It's one of the reasons that I think punk landed for me the way it did was there were films that embraced it as thoroughly as this one did. I was yeah. just you. You're both slightly older than me, so I, I think I was maybe three or four years behind. I would have been a little too uh, childish. I think I'm old enough to be your mother, Scott. No, you are not. Don't say that. No, uh, but but um, you are. Um, the the point is though, I was just saying, like I, I just don't think I was probably too naive to even get what punk was responding to, let alone get into the punk sensibility. But I would recommend Carrie if you're you probably read it. There's a fantastic book called Destroy All Movies, The Complete Guide to Punks on Film. Uh, it's by two of my friends, Brian Connolly and Zach Carlson. And it is a compilation or a, a, a retrospective of all anytime punk characters appeared in a film, either centrally or tangentially. Uh, so check that out. Destroy All Movies. It is a okay. great book. It is a great book. Uh, I, I want to thank you, Carrie, for joining us. Thank I, you uh, so much, Carrie. It is oh, a thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk to a film critic, uh, you know, uh, old school, who wrote for a <laughs> daily paper uh, and, you know, is now also still writing in the digital era. Uh, I just want to let you know that uh, an entire generation of people read your stuff. And uh, uh, I, I appreciate all the work that you did. Uh, it, does, it might not feel like that you didn't have with, with the print criticism going the way it goes. I could see a lot of film writers feeling like, well, that's that. No one really cared about my work, but. Lots oh, of people I, did. I, know, I, don't, I don't think that. I good, just don't. Good. I don't. I just think people used to want to read film critics to see, to know what to see. And now people only want to watch what they want to watch. Yeah. Right. And that's and, a really, that's a really different orientation. So my way of dealing with that is I now, instead of reviewing movies, I kind of go deep, you know, I'll, you know, I did a, the Criterion's liner notes on broadcast news, and I'm writing. I'm writing about sisters right now for Criterion. So I'm doing deep dives on movies, which is where, so much more satisfying than reviews. Where can people read your current stuff? Um, I index most of my recent stuff on CarrieRicky.com. Perfect. Okay. And, yep. and you're also on Twitter at CarrieRicky. At CarrieRicky, yeah, and. Um, I don't know. And I'm on Facebook, but I have 5,000 followers on Facebook, so I can't take any more. <laughs> uh, so that's about it. But thanks for asking, and uh, I'll see you at the movies. 